I've already heard this story. And I'd like to talk tonight about uh, what is known in the teachings as right understanding, which is the first step on the path to awakening or the path to liberation and freedom. You may have heard the story of the Buddha after the night of his enlightenment. He was pretty luminous, as you can imagine, and is reputed to have been an extremely handsome prince. And so as he was walking down the road, someone uh, encountered him and was so taken aback by his beauty and his luminosity that he was startled and said to the Buddha, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. And he said, well, are you a prince? And he said, no. And he said, well, are you an, an angel, deva? And he said, no. Are you a man? He said, no. Well, he said, what are you? And the Buddha said, I am awake. Now, as the story goes, and this is just an aside, as the story goes, the person said the Nepalese 2,500 years ago equivalent of whatever, and walked away and left. You know, the Buddha said he was the one gone forth, the one awake, etc. He just said, okay, you know, and left. And I wonder sometimes how many times I've met a Buddha and kind of just walked away and ignored them. Anyway, that's not the point of my story. The point of my story is that in those three words, I am awake, the Buddha actually gave the entire teaching. Because that's what we do when we sit here in meditation and we um, pay attention to our minds, our bodies, and our hearts. So, one, to be a Buddha is to be one who is awakened, one who is awakened to the nature of life and death and the world in which we live awakened to the body and the mind. So the purpose of coming here and practicing or practicing as we do, as many of us do, day to day, moment to moment to moment, is not to become a Buddhist, which some of you may be relieved to hear, or to become a meditator or a spiritual person or to join something but rather it's to understand this capacity we have to awaken, this natural capacity of ours as human beings. What can we awaken to? We awaken to the Dharma. To that is, Dharma is the Sanskrit word, Dhamma is the Pali word, which refers to that which is universal, to the laws of the universe, to the teachings that describe it. And in the, uh, in, in the chants in the monasteries, they describe the, uh, the Dharma, the Dhamma, as akaliko, immediate, 
able to be discerned right here and right now to be discovered. So we may be looking for some kind of big flash to happen where, you know, one moment we're unawakened, unenlightened beings and the next moment we become this amazing, uh, luminous, awakened being or to have some kind of otherworldly experience every time we sit down, any time we sit down to meditate. And what the Dharma is, and what we can awaken to, is the truth that is here. When we leave behind our fantasies and our memories, and we come into the present moment. It's very simple. It's not complicated. So, what are these laws? Well, the first of these laws is karma. And you, we know it as the law of cause and effect, which means we don't get away with anything. Right? But it, explicitly it means that we become what we do. Or we create our future by how we think, how we speak, and how we act. So, for example, if we practice being angry all the time, in a while when a situation arises, that's what our response to it will be. And it will create the same in other people. And that will be the kind of society that we end up in. Right? So it all starts with us. And if we, if we practice becoming, being loving, if that's how we, what we practice as our um, default response in our lives, then that became, becomes the way we respond all the time. And that becomes the way of what will happen to us in the future. And it becomes the way others respond to us. And it becomes the kind of society in which we live. We mistake our habits for ourselves. We take on habits and we make identities out of those habits. And that is partly what the teachings on not-self that you may have heard point to. Once we create a self from our habits, we make of them a prison from which it is almost impossible to free ourselves. We can't break free once we establish a habit and we decide that's who I am. Right? That's not what I do, but that's who I am. The neuroscientists are discovering that the brain is plastic and that um, every time we have a particular response to a situation, the brain registers it and it, and it actually wears a physical neural pathway in the brain. And that neural pathway then becomes our way of responding. 
So 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said, wherever we put the mind, that's where it will incline. And of course, now the neuroscientists are saying it's true, so now we accept it, right? But it was always true. It was always true that wherever we put the mind, that's where it will incline. And that's why we do a meditation practice. Because in the meditation practice, we begin to see and understand the habits that we've established in our lives. And we begin to see if we really pay attention in the way that Julie and I were discussing tonight. If you really pay attention, you begin to understand in a much more in a much deeper way what habits you've you've established and what effect they have had on your life because when the chatter of the mind stops when the mind is no longer chattering at us and telling us what to think and how to think and what to do and how to do it when we allow the mind to get still and somewhat silent it's not it's it's really difficult to make the mind completely still or completely silent. But you probably have um, experienced already the first insight of insight meditation, which is the mind wonders, right? How many of you tonight only noticed your breath? Nobody? That's amazing, right? So it seems like a pretty simple thing you're asked to sit down, pay attention to the breath. And what happens? The mind goes off. It starts to tell us about what happened yesterday, what might happen tomorrow, how it could be, how it could have been different, why it wasn't so good, why what we're doing isn't so good, why we're so, you know, whatever. So the... um, The tendency of the mind to tell us what to think and how to think and what to do and how to do it can be set aside in this practice at least somewhat. And when that happens, we begin to see deeply what the effect of our words, our thoughts, and our acts have been. It's the law of karma is one of the first things you notice when you begin to practice awareness and mindfulness. When the Buddha spoke to people who were interested in happiness, they said, how can we be happy? He said, well, one way is to understand that if you cultivate kindness and generosity and awareness and giving, you will be happy. And also the way that karma works is that your world will become more of a cycling than a way of fear and holding. You will discover happiness in this generosity. If you're kind to people, if you, if you establish um, a basic level of non-harming, what's called virtue, if your words are honest and helpful, if your actions are truthful and helpful and based on kindness, your world will start to become kind. And inside you'll feel kinder and happier and outside people will treat you that way. 
And so when we discuss, so the law of karma is the first thing that we see because when the mind gets still, we begin to understand how that all works. We begin to see in some ways, um, I know in my own practice, when I first started practicing, it felt like um, uh, my entire past was coming up to haunt me because I saw all of the ways in which I had been unskillful in my life and what the causes of that, what the results of that unskillfulness were. And I also saw the ways in which I was skillful and what the results of that skillfulness was. And then the second thing you discover is that there are two places that we can live. One is to live in our fantasy in our thoughts about things, and the other is to be more here in our bodies, in our eyes, in our nose, in our senses, and in the direct experience of things. So one way is to live in our fantasies, and the other is to come completely into this life, completely into the life of the senses, live in our physical bodies, and to open and to see what these bodies, these senses have to teach us. And when we do that, we begin to see some of the characteristics of this world in which we live, the phenomena of this world in which we live. And one characteristic is impermanence. In the Diamond Sutta, which is a Mahayana Sutta, it says, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a bubble in a stream, a flickering lamp, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. As you look more closely, you observe that everything changes. Seeing changes, hearing changes, smelling, tasting, and physical sensations are all changing all of the time. All the experiences in the body and the mind, all of the experiences of the senses change. And if you look at your own experience, you begin to see that that is true. Just even looking at how you were born as a small baby and where's that baby gone? You, know, you look in the mirror and you see this gray hair and the skin sagging a little bit, and yet you feel totally young, right? You still feel like you're 25, and you look in the mirror and you say, who's that, right? Who's stolen my body and um, replaced it with another? But it's because there's this change that's happening all the time. And it seems solid, it's called santati, the illusion of santati. It's like a movie. You watch the screen and you get caught in uh, the action of the movie and you think, you know, that um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the leading man is actually, you know, uh, making love to the leading woman and you get totally uh, involved in the story or you, or you shout, no, don't turn around, don't turn around. Right? Because you think it's really real. 
And yet if you turn your attention to the projector or you actually look at what the components of that reality on the screen are, you see that what it is is that they're um, uh, individual frames moving really, really fast and so they give the illusion of something that's held together, that's real and substantial and solid. But you know that the reality of it is that it's not. So what we see is that the frames are arising and dissolving one after another. And it's possible with meditation, too, that if you practice really deeply, after a while when the mind begins to get really still and really silent, you begin to see that in your own experience, that actually everything is changing, moving, and dissolving as we sit here. It's said that the, um, the liver changes every six weeks, the brain changes every year, our skin is exchanged with the stuff of the universe all the time. And so after, I think it's seven years, the entire body is a completely new body. And that's the um, phenomenon of change, that we're not the same. And uh, my teacher always talks about the fact that he, um, he asks the question, anybody ever, anybody experience anything in their lives that's not changed? Anybody here experience anything that's not changed? And he said once somebody raised their hand and said, yes, delusion. (laughs) I've been deluded all my life. And so as things change, if we hold on to them, if we attempt to hold them back or want them not to change, what happens? We suffer. We suffer or we get disappointed. And you can be attached as you want to be, as much as you want to be, and yet you know, even no matter how much you want things to stay exactly the same, you know, it's like a, whether it's a meditation experience or you know, you get your jo- the job that is the absolutely perfect job with the perfect boss and the perfect salary and the perfect everything, you think, okay, I've done it, right? I don't want it to change. And then what happens? You know, the company decides to move out out of town or the boss quits or somebody dies or something happens. Or relationships. Anything in life. Look at all of the ways in which we have, over time, found places in our lives where we felt, okay, I finally... I finally hit the right note. And then it changes. Or, um, conversely, where we've wanted things, um, we've, we've not hit the right note. And we've thought, oh my God, this is a disaster. Life is going to be like this forever. And then something changes. It always happens. There's nothing that, nothing, nothing, nothing that stays the same. And so you start to see in your meditation practice the law of things, that things are impermanent and that they don't 
stay the same and that attachment then doesn't work and that there must be some other way. That's sometimes called the wisdom of insecurity, the ability to flow with things and to see them as a changing process. And you see, you also see not only are they impermanent and not only are they impermanent, but because they're impermanent, it's impossible to grasp them and make them stay the same. But that they're suffering if we're attached. That this clinging mind that wants things to not change makes us suffer. And that there's pleasure and pain in this world. That they are uh, concomitant. That if we have pleasure, we will have pain. And if we have pain, we will have pleasure. And that's part of what we were born into. So you come to see that you don't own this body, that even the very body that you're in is a rental. It's not an ownership thing. You get it for a little while, you take care of it, you feed it, you walk it, you exercise it, you jog it, but it's not yours to possess. You can be, begin to see, as a matter of fact, that nothing in this world is possessable because we will lose everything. The nature of life is non-possession. So we sit to awaken. We sit and we awaken by coming into our bodies and into our senses and we start to see the laws that govern life so that we can have a wiser relationship with it. And what this teaches is a way of awareness and a way of wholeness, of bringing our body and our mind together, our heart and our actions, becoming conscious with our speech, conscious with all of our walking, our eating, our standing, our sitting, our lying down, and making them a part of what allows us to grow and to live. And what it means is we begin to accept these three characteristics, that there is change, that there is constant change in this life that there is some pain and suffering and that we don't control it very much. It's not ours to control. You control some of it, but not very much of it, and in a really limited way. And so the question arises, especially when we as a people of color come together to sit, of the... um, the alarm bells kind of go off and we wonder, well, you know, this meditation feels kind of good and, you know, it may make me a little bit calmer, but doesn't it fragment me away from the world? Doesn't it make me not want to, um, make me become attached to solitude? And if we try to get quiet and block everything out and close our eyes, our noses, and go inside to a cave. Is that what happens to us? And I can't do that because this world is a mess, right? And it needs somebody. It needs somebody to take care of it. 
So the spirituality that will work for us is not a spirituality where we find peace by leaving the world, which is not to say that we shouldn't from time to time leave the world, go on retreats or on vacations or whatever we need to do. But fundamentally, for spiritual practice to be vital in our lives, it has to be such that we can use it everywhere, in the supermarket, while we drive, when we're walking, when we're talking to our kids, when we're doing our jobs, when we're dealing with our families, and to make everything a part of it, the injustice in the world, the economic injustice, the racial injustice, all of the ways in which there's oppression and fear-causing, that we can be in the middle of that and see what the appropriate response is, not to escape. So what's being trained here is not, a, is not a, an escape, but a way that we can meet life from an internal point of view that is equanimous, that is kind, and that is compassionate, and from an external point of view, meeting what is true in our experience and meeting it with an appropriate response that causes neither more suffering for ourselves or for others. Social responsibility is, of course, part of what it means to be a human being. Because, as Martin Luther King taught us, the nature of this world is interrelated. He said we are in an inescapable network of mutuality. And if we try to find something in the universe to single out as one thing, the universe is, not, is incapable of producing such a thing. Because everything in the universe is fixed, hitched to something else, said John Muir, who's a naturalist. So there's exploitation and injustice everywhere. There are wars everywhere. We have 50,000 nuclear warheads. So you must listen to your heart. From one point of view, you see that what is necessary is to develop the heart. And from another point of view, you see that what is necessary is to act. There is compelling need in our society. So we can say, what are we doing sitting around, right? And yet, what is compelling is when we look at what the cause of this inequality, injustice, starvation, war, cruelty, what is the source of it? The cause of it is greed, and the cause of it is prejudice and hatred. We hate people of different religions, people of different uh, skin color, different customs. We like our country, our family, our religion, our type. So there's hoarding and there's grasping and greed and hatred and ignorance. 
and we've tried revolutions and you know they've worked kind of temporarily but it just keeps going around and around and around in this world because we haven't actually touched the root of the problem the way out of the root of the problem is for someone to discover what it means not to get caught up in anger what it means to be free from that fear or from or that prejudice which arises in human hearts and minds it's not your fault that it arises it's there as because we're human what it what it means to be unafraid of that which is painful as well as that which is pleasant and to have the heart completely open for all that the world presents we don't need more oil or more food as much as we need somebody who understands how to avoid getting caught in anger and fear and prejudice and that somebody is you that somebody is me so instead of it being a luxury to meditate we see it's a necessity it's a responsibility for anyone who can to figure out in our own being in our own life what it means to be not caught by these forces to learn a new way and then bring that to bear on the economic and social and political kinds of suffering in the world so our training in meditation is not a running away from the world at all it's really a sitting down right in the middle of it paying attention to that which is pleasant paying attention to that which is painful that which is noisy that which is silent and begin to relis- to listen to our relationship to it to observe it to learn from it and learn a wise way of relating because it's not what's arising that causes our suffering what causes our suffering is how we relate to what is arising and that's what meditation trains us to do is to see a wiser way of relationship the heart of this inner way of practice is mindfulness it's listening it's pay atten- paying attention to our bodies and to all of the various energies to the voices paying attention in every action in every thought in every word and it's a big job it's not easy it's not simple well it is simple but it's not easy it is very simple it's being here right now so as you sit here right now just reflect for a moment what is necessary what is necessary for this um moment to be perfect is there anything that is missing right now that could make this moment any more perfect than it already is 
when I do that reflection, what I notice is that this moment is perfect. There is nothing that's needed. There is nothing that needs to be added. There's nothing that needs to be subtracted. There's nothing that needs to be divided. It's all perfect, just as it is. And yet the mind goes out and wants things to be different. So we use the first foundation of mindfulness, the the mindfulness of the body. To become wise is to live in this physical reality of this beautiful body. To live in the feelings, to be aware of emotions, to be aware of the pleasant and neutral and unpleasant experience of our aspect of our experience, and to learn that we don't have to resist that which is painful and then grasp that which is pleasant all the time. That may be our conditioning, but in fact it doesn't lead to peace. It doesn't lead to happiness, because things changed anyway. And if you're attached to them, they change. So it's an open-hearted, non-judging awareness which comes into the body and, the fe- and into the feelings and then observes the mind as well as its laws, the laws of impermanence, the law of karma, and begins to see how to relate to that out of compassion and kindness and wisdom, which means seeing things as they really are, seeing how things actually operate on an internal level and understanding how that internal way of relating will influence the external situation. And then looking at this external situation and see which part of it we are allowing to throw us off balance and see whether it's possible to come into some kind of balance with what is actually happening. Sometimes it's painful when you sit. Sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes you have bliss and light and you get attached to it. And sometimes it gets painful and then you want to avoid it. Sometimes it's the very greatest difficulties in our sitting or in our life that makes the heart open most. Or finally, we get the fact that we can't get attached to things and hold on to them. That they don't go the way we think they ought to go, but that they go the way that they go. So wisdom begins to arise. And with that wisdom, there is, the, there is the possibility, the ability to work with what is happening externally with some balance and with some responsiveness rather than reactivity. Because our conditioning is to respond to what is happening in the external world by the habit energy that I was talking about before. We establish these habits. We don't see that these habits, each time that we execute them, they become stronger in our mind-body process. So we begin to see through meditation that that is so. We begin to understand that it's possible to shift our relationship.
We can use our silence, we can use our stillness to break the habit of the automatic pilot that we've established in our lives, wherever wherever it has been established. Perhaps it's in one particular part of your life that you know there's a habit that is unbeneficial, that is unwholesome or unskillful. The only way that that habit will be broken is by breaking the habit. That's the only way. There's nobody else that can do it. There's nothing else that we can do other than to start to shift the way in which we relate to that particular situation. Whether it's because we eat too much or we drink too much or we don't or we don't do this or we don't do that or we think we should exercise or meditate more, whatever it is that we think we should be establishing in our lives that we're not, the way that it happens is that we actually feel, see the, with wisdom, what is happening, and through that wisdom, shifting the relationship to our experience. And when we shift the relationship to our experience, the habits, be, the, the old habits begin to die, and new habits are given the space to take birth. If we can come to a place of understanding more deeply the nature of this life, understand deeply the law of cause and effect, understand deeply the impermanent, insubstantial, and sometimes painful nature of experience, our relationship to all of it can shift. And it shifts through our meditation practice. It shifts not because we use some strong sense of will or willpower to move and shift things, but because um, our understanding dawns quite naturally through the still and silent mind, through this practice of looking at our experience without judgment, without criticism, but with some precision, some gentleness, some gentleness, and letting go of uh, the fixed ideas that we have about life, and allowing what is really true to enter into our awareness, to enter into our understanding. So I'll leave it there. And if you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them.